You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the University of Toronto's Vice President International. He is also the Roz and Ralph Halbert Professor of Innovation at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy and a Professor of Political Science. He was the Director of the Asian Institute at the Monk School from 2005 to 2014 and held a Canada Research Chair in Health, Democracy and Development from 2006 to 2016. Holding a PhD from the University of Wisconsin Medicine, his latest book is titled From Development to Democracy, The Transformations of Modern Asia. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Joseph Wong. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Eddie. I really appreciate this. Firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and how this book came about. Sure. Um, well, as you already indicated, I'm a professor of political science at the University of Toronto, and, and I also have the privilege of uh, uh, having a faculty position at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Um, my area of interest in terms of research has always been um, focused on Asia. Uh, and my earliest work has looked at places like Taiwan and South Korea, always been interested in questions of democracy and democratization and the impact of democratic transition, including in areas like social policy, health policy, industrial policy, and so forth. Uh, this book is a little bit different because rather than thinking about democracy or democratization as the independent variable and its impacts, I'm, in this book, Dan and I are really interested in understanding democratization as the output or the prospects of democracy as the dependent variable, as it were. Um, and this is something that uh, Dan and I, I think, quite independently of one another and the theory that we forward in the book is something that Dan and I, quite independently of one another, had actually been thinking about and uh, ruminating on for several years before he and I actually ever even met. And he was thinking about it in the context of Southeast Asia, which is where Dan uh, has, um, you know, really dedicated his career and or his academic career. And 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 I was really thinking about it in the context of Northeast Asia, and it was really just this simple puzzle at least for me in the context of Taiwan, which was a case that I was interested in, is why did the KMT pursue democratic transition beginning in the late 1980s when the regime was still strong? Uh, and in fact, uh, when the regime wasn't facing the kind of pressures that we would normally expect to prompt a democratic transition. In other words, it really didn't need to democratize, and yet it chose to. And so, you know, about 10 years ago, so Dan and I uh, met at a conference. We'd, of course, known of each other's work and of each other for a long time, just in terms of having read each other's work. But it was the first time we had met, and we quickly realized that we were thinking along the same lines uh, with respect to Southeast and Northeast Asia. And from there, uh, we authored, uh, co-authored an article on about democracy through strength and strong state democratization which was published in Perspectives on Politics. And that piece is actually an article that we wrote. It was quite funny. I mean, we wrote it basically in a cafe in Madison. 
over the course of two days. We just had our laptops open and we just wrote and the paper kind of wrote itself and we brought together the cases of Taiwan, South Korea and Indonesia. And as I say, the paper really wrote itself and that article uh, then became the basis of what is now this book. Yeah, and I can I can totally imagine how that would have happened because once you have sort of this conceptual framework where where you're thinking about democracy not as the the independent variable but the dependent variable, um, then then sort of the the rest of the story really writes itself. Um, there are so many examples of this. I mean, you you mentioned Taiwan, um, the the KMT um, democratizing from a position of strength without any of the normal pressures. So that that sort of diverges. A lot from the way we tend to think conventionally about democracy, which is, you know, that uh, an authoritarian regime sort of has to democratize in order to to prevent a coup or a revolution or something yeah. like that. Um, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And I mean, I want to stress, and indeed in our theory, we're very careful in 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 saying that it's not that they these strong regimes don't face any threats. In fact, what's really critical to our argument is that these strong regimes confront signals of their gradual decline. And as we argue in the book, you know, and in the article, that the optimal time for these strong states to democratize is when they've just passed their apex of power. So, you know, these regimes are not continuing to accrue power, but in fact, they've um, passed their apex of power. Um, and as you say, I mean, it, it, you know, it was an intuition, it was an argument that seemed to work for Taiwan. It was an argument that worked not, not as perfectly so, but still worked in the case of South Korea. And then in the case of Indonesia, we made the argument as well, even though in that case, uh, it was a less than perfect fit. And in fact, that's one of the key insights of the book is not to say that these regimes that have pursued democracy through strength are all identical and that they are all of equal strength. Or that they, you know, approach the kind of strength that the KMT had in Taiwan, but rather these regimes array across a spectrum of strength. And that the spectrum of strength, that is to say, stronger regimes and less stronger regimes have an impact on the kind of democracy that ensues and the kind of stability expectations the regime might have. So the variation even within these strong state cases themselves are not, the variation itself is not trivial. It, it is actually pretty consequential. And then, you know, in the course of writing the book, I should also add, you know, we, we, we started, um, you know, giving papers and the article itself was gaining attention and Princeton University approach, uh, Princeton University Press approached us asking if we would consider um, turning the article or the instinct in the article into a book. And through conversations then that we were having with colleagues and friends in the academy, you know, we realized that this argument that democracy can emerge from relatively strong regimes as opposed to the conventional wisdom that democracies emerge either to prevent their imminent collapse or um, even more likely that they arise out of the ashes of a collapsed regime. We began to see actually that this argument resonated in other cases around the world. And so a few years ago, Rachel Riedel from Cornell, who's an African politics specialist, and Dan Ziblatt at Harvard, who was a European politics specialist, um, we together with Dan Slater and myself uh, authored a piece uh, looking at this thesis of democracy through strength, using the East Asian example as the sort of exemplary case 
but also drawing very strong parallels with the way in which democracy uh, was born in um, post-colonial Ghana, uh, in West Africa, as well as in the early experiments in democracy formation in the UK. And so this instinct, which at least from the perspective of Danami, was born out of the Asian context is one in which we actually see resonance both across different regions and cultures and levels of economic development, as well as across time. And I think that was a really important um, that was a really important piece in the sense that this it, it convinced us this this argument and that this theory was not distinctly unique to the Asian region. Okay, um, so I think on on the surface that that idea sort of seems a little counterintuitive. Like, why would any regime or dictator loosen their grip on power unless they were in danger of losing it? So, can you tell us a bit more about sort of the the process behind um, this idea of democracy through strength and, and sort of what causes it? What's the catalyst? Yeah, so um, as I say, you know, a strong regime at some point begins to confront signals of its incipient decline, and so. Some of these signals may be, for instance, um, you know, they're declining electoral popularity, and this would be in illiberal democracies in which you have unfair and unfree elections, but nonetheless, you have these flawed elections taking place, and dictators can see that over time, um, their popularity is beginning to wane or beginning to soften. In some cases, it may be an economic crisis or shock or a prolonged economic downswing, which again starts to eat away at the legitimacy and the strength of the authoritarian regime. Some of it can be, as we also note, geopolitical, right? As regimes begin to lose some of their geopolitical patronage, uh, that too is a signal to the regime that it may be past its apex of power. And of course, the rise of contentious politics, movements, social movements, mobilization in the streets. These are all examples, uh, signals uh, that the regime may um may you know conclude that they pass the apex of power so once a strong regime starts to confront these signals it can make the assessment that well we may be past our apex of power but we are uh, nonetheless uh, still a very strong political party we still preside over very robust political economic institutions we have, uh, you know, a whole repertoire of what we call antecedent strengths, most notably, for instance, in the case of successful democracy through strength cases in East Asia and Southeast Asia, you know, a record of economic development. The KMT in the 1980s, even though it was a nasty autocratic regime, could point to the fact that it had presided over a developmental state that had overseen meteoric, uh, you know, growth in Taiwan. The same could be said about the ruling regime in South Korea. And in fact, the same could even be said about Golkar, which of course, you know, had to confront the shock of the Asian financial crisis, but nonetheless was able to demonstrate to prospective democratic voters that, you, you know, it had presided over a, a really quite remarkable record of economic development. So you have this moment in a regime's life where it's starting to lose its grip on power, but it's at a particular moment in which it retains enough political power, enough political strength to start loosening the rules of the game, to start level the playing field with the confidence, however, that by democratizing, the regime's not necessarily going to lose power, but in fact, because of its strength and because of its antecedent strength, uh, democratization may in fact help the regime 
keep a hold on uh, on political power. And that's precisely what we see uh, in the case of Taiwan and the KMT is that it lifts martial law in 1987, allows the formation of an opposition political party in 1986, free and uh, fair uh, legislative elections in 1992, and founding elections in 1996, all of which the KMT, by virtue of its antecedent strengths and accumulated strengths actually proves victorious and continues to hold on to political power. So it is a judgment call, and we call it the bittersweet spot. Bitter in the sense that the regime has started to lose its grip on power, its popularity is beginning to wane, but nonetheless sweet in the sense that it should uh, be victorious if it were to democratize. And it should also um, it should also preside over a relatively stable democratic transition as well so i mean as as you were talking um sort of one example that seemed to me um as a country that had gone sort of in the exact opposite direction is china um Mm -hmm. so um you know obviously when when with the the communist revolution in the 50s um it's their initial um their initial source of legitimacy was sort of this um this this charismatic legitimacy under mao um, yeah. you know, under, under Deng Xiaoping after that, it was, you know, a rapid economic growth, sort of like you mentioned, um, yeah. with, with the KMT in, in Taiwan, the eighties that, you know, they, they had legitimacy in claiming that they had presided over this period of meteoric, um, economic growth. Um, yeah. and I think that that sort of continued, um, for a few decades yeah. and until, um, they, they were at a point, um, sort of in the 2000s, 2010s, where economic growth was sort of tapering off. Um, you know, it was no longer those those double-digit growth figures. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, instead of, of doing what so many other of their uh, um, neighbors had, had done, which is democratize to, to maintain some sort of legitimacy moving forward as their popu- popularity would in- inevitably decline, um, China sort of seemed to go in the opposite direction with President Xi Jinping, um, where, you know, he sort of consolidated power in China if today is, is less democratic, if anything. Um, so can you tell us a bit about what, what went on here, um, and why they diverge from their neighbors? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in the book, we actually, uh, have a pretty in-depth treatment of China and the Chinese case in two chapters. Um, and, and we did this on purpose. The first chapter that we, um, really examine the China case, uh, takes us through to the June 4th, um, uh, the June 4th massacre of 1989. And we, we wanted to bracket the analysis there because, you know, there is a prevailing argument out there that in 1989, you had a Chinese Communist Party that had the opportunity confronted with massive mobilization from below. It had the opportunity to democratize, but uh, chose instead to repress and to violently quash um, what was then a pro-democracy impulse. And the argument we make in the book, actually, is that um, June 4th, 1989, the CCP certainly was in a position uh, to democratize, but it was not a strong regime, that it actually lacked the strength. Uh, it lacked um, the, the the kind of institutionalization within the political party. Um, it lacked the kind of popularity. It, at that point in 1989, did not have the economic growth record that it certainly has today. 
So the long and short of it is basically, say, in 1989, the CCP was too weak to concede democracy. And when you think about it and put it into its historical context, 1989 was just barely uh, more than a decade um, uh, from the end of the Cultural Revolution when China and Chinese society was in upheaval and the political party itself uh, was uh, in disarray. So this was hardly a strong party presiding over uh, a strong record of economic development. It was actually the opposite. And so, you know, we think about the missed opportunity in 1989 is not a missed opportunity for democracy through strength, but rather, quite predictably, it was the avoidance of democracy by a weak regime. Fast forward now to the present day, and I think you're quite right in what is 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 perplexing for many, um, is that what we have now in China actually is a regime that is um, very strong. Uh, it has now um, several decades uh, of economic, sustained economic growth, um, arguably the most remarkable economic transformation in human history. Uh, it's a regime that has consolidated its political power, and under Xi Jinping, it, it has continued to consolidate political power uh, within the party itself. And so you know, this would make then the CCP a seemingly, um, uh, you know, a seemingly primed case for democracy through strength. Uh, and indeed, we grapple with this in the book, which is to say, you know, uh, we make the case that, in fact, if the CCP were to hold elections today, free and fair elections, it's inconceivable, given the popularity of the regime, given its economic record and so forth, it's inconceivable that the party would lose elections uh, and lose its hold on power. In fact, we would we would think that the CCP would, in fact, be able to hold on to political power. And indeed, it would it should have every expectation of continued stability and economic development. And yet it chooses not to. Um, and so we have to deal with that in the book. Uh, had the book come out, say, seven or eight years ago, we might have we might have surmised that Xi Jinping was consolidating political power within the party in order to launch the kind of liberalizing reforms that we see in other democracy through strength cases. We now know seven years later that's not the case at all. And so why is that? Um, we deal with that in the chapter on uh, developmentalism, in which we uh, highlight the very distinctive um, pathway of political economic development that China experienced, as well as other developmental socialist regimes. Chief among which, for instance, in terms of the characteristics, chief among them being the fact that these regimes emerge out of revolutionary socialist movements. There is, um, uh, unlike, for instance, in Taiwan and Korea and other developmental states in the region, there is uh, the absence of any liberal democratic possibility. I mean, if, even if you look, for instance, at the KMT, or even if you look at the conservative uh, autocratic regimes in South Korea, there was always at least some form of a kind of democratic heritage in the founding of those regimes, even if those democracies were flawed or centralized or a farce. But there was always a, a seed uh, of that kind of democratic heritage. You don't see that at all in socialist regimes. In fact, you, you see the complete absence of that. So there is a kind of ideational as well as ideological aversion to this. In the case of China as well, you know, um, the absence of any kind of elections, and we really dismiss uh, uh, rural elections or village elections as, as really nothing more than 
uh, window dressing. I mean, in the absence of these kinds of uh, even limited and flawed elections that we saw in pre-democratic Taiwan and South Korea and Indonesia and elsewhere, um, the regime just doesn't have the ability to confront these signals. It doesn't have these electoral signals that can uh, imbue these regimes with the kind of confidence, the, the Chinese Communist Party, that is, to imbue the CCP with the kind of confidence that if it were to democratize, it would be victorious, that if it were to democratize, um, it should expect stability. So there are a whole host of reasons there for then, some of it um, historical, some of it institutional, some of it really about more contemporary politics that um, militates against uh, the the democracy through strength scenario rising. Obviously, the geopolitical tension with the United States and the geopolitical tension with democracies around the world um, only strengthens uh, the CCP's aversion to choosing a democratic pathway. Yeah, so this this cultural idea that you brought up is very interesting um, because, I mean, I, I don't know if you, you would count um, Russia as part of Asia, probably not. Um, but still, I, I think that that's um, the the example there that you use sort of applies here as well. Um, you know, there's this long tradition of strongman leaders, you know, going back hundreds of years with czars and and that sort of thing. And um, you know, e- even when the the United Russia Party was was very strong, we saw the same same sort of democratic backsliding. Um, that that yeah. um, you know, sh- sh- that that we should have. I mean, based on the examples of South Korea and Taiwan, you know, if we were expecting that trend to continue, um, we would have expected the, the exact opposite. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that's a very interesting idea that um, yeah. the, the culture and history of, of a regime can really play a strong part in influencing the direction that it takes as it gains institutional strength. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, certainly culture and history and, and, and the, the sort of historical origins of these regimes matter a great deal. But I also think that, you know, in pure sort of political science, um, terms, the key lesson to learn from the former Soviet Union, um, is the lesson that the Chinese regime currently, I think, um, misunderstands. So, you know, in China, um, when you talk to, uh, party officials, um, they will say, you know, their concern about democratization is, um, you know, is the kind of chaos and the kind of instability that we saw in the Soviet Union or the former Soviet Union. And so, you know, the lesson that CCP takes from the former CPSU is, you know, don't democratize because if you democratize, you know, you're essentially asking for instability and you're asking for stalled development and you're asking for all the uh, the bad things that the CCP doesn't want and certainly um, uh, all the bad things that it does not want for uh, the Chinese nation. Right? And I totally understand um, that line of reasoning. However, the argument uh, that we make in the book is, is that the CPSU and the Soviet Union um, conceded democracy, but it conceded democracy when it was already very weak. So when, um, uh, when uh, Gorbachev uh, launches perestroika, uh, and Glasnost, I mean, these are uh, opening up reforms at a time when the regime was already weak and no longer strong. In other words, it had conceded democracy well past its best before date. And so the lesson that we think is important to take from the so- former Soviet case is not that democracy invites instability, but rather democratizing too late when you're too weak 
invites instability. And so the lesson, if the CCP were to think about it this way, the lesson the CCP should take is that one ought to democratize when you're strong, i.e. sooner rather than later when the regime is weak. And so that actually, you know, turns the idea of democracy promotion on its head. I mean, I think that there is, you know, the the current view of China and the prospects of democracy in China is one in which we look for democracy to emerge from the ashes of a collapsed CCP. Uh, that democracy can only emerge uh, in China when the ruling authorities are so thoroughly delegitimated and weakened that the regime has collapsed. Um, on a purely normative uh, level, that would be disastrous for um, uh, for the people of China. Um, a collapsed regime and a collapsed China uh, would be inhumane, and and you know, frankly, a collapsed China would wreak havoc on on the global trading system, the global economy, supply chains. The opportunity here actually is to convince the CCP regime that democracy is actually incentive compatible with the regime, that um, democracy can emerge in China not because the regime is so weak, but rather because the regime ought to have the confidence that it is strong enough to launch democratic reforms and continue to retain its hold on power, but to retain its hold on power legitimately through democratic means and through democratic elections. So, it, you know, it's a different way of thinking about now how do you promote the prospects of democracy in China uh, less by vilifying um, and, and hoping for the collapse of the regime and instead actually convincing the regime that it makes more sense for it to democratize when it's strong and therefore democratize sooner rather than later. So just to finish off very quickly, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about perhaps the, the, the country with the strongest institutions um, in, in, in Asia, if not the world, um, Singapore. So mm -hmm. they've democratized in the sense that there's, there's no extensive electioneering or election fraud, but the PAP still overwhelmingly wins elections every time there's, there's little prospect for any change in government. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think this this example sort of plays right into what you were talking about in the sense that democracy um, doesn't necessarily mean instability. I mean, they've had they've been democratic since I think the very start um, in terms of holding right. elections, but th this hasn't led to instability. If, if anything, it's it's been the opposite. They've been incredibly stable. Um, so yeah. what 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 in, uh, what happened differently in this case as compared to well, other we would we South would Asian actually countries? code yeah we would code Singapore as a non democracy. I mean, there are elections, uh, absolutely. And also, you know, in the, what we call the developmental Britannia cluster, uh, which includes the case of Singapore as well as Malaysia and Hong Kong, there are very strong legal institutions there. Uh, and there's a very strong tradition of the rule of law. So certainly it's a different kind of non-democratic regime. Um, and on the spectrum of, you know, liberal to illiberal democracies, it is certainly much less autocratic than we would see, for instance, in China or, uh, in some of the other developmental socialist regimes, but we can we 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 contend nonetheless that in Singapore uh, the challenge for um, for would be Democrats is that the playing field remains very uneven and uh, uh, not leveled, and it's precisely because the PAP um, continues to you know dominate um, the elections and and is able to allocate resources in order to ensure the playing field is not even 
and not level. And the way in which we then describe uh, regimes like Singapore is that these are strong legalist regimes. There is a strong rule of law. And in fact, there is a kind of uh, equilibrium that's achieved there in the sense that they uh, 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 don't feel the pressure to further democratize. Uh, and as you quite rightly point out, uh, don't feel the instability uh, such that the regime would feel any particular threat. So there is a kind of ossification there um, that can lead, for instance, in the case of Malaysia, to you know a really kind of descent into a much nastier form of authoritarianism or a kind of stasis that we see in Singapore where we see considerable progress to a more open political system, but one that which is still fundamentally resting on an uneven playing field and, and essentially you know uh, a regime that makes it impossible for there ever to be an alternation in political power, certainly as it is um, presently. Okay, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Wong. Great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it as well. Okay, thank you everyone for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.